What do you want, you moon-faced assassin of joy? Hi, I'm Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And this is the audio guide to Babylon 5, Episode 4, Born to the Purple. And welcome back to our fourth episode of our bi-weekly, bi-bi-weekly, is that even a, an effective <laughs> phrase? Uh, look at yes. the look at the episodes of Babylon 5, our favorite, well, maybe not our favorite, one of our favorite, it's our favorite 1990s <laughs> sci-fi space opera with CGI animation. How's that? Here, here. It's a start. All right. Some quick notes before we get started. Uh, If you happened to tune in last time, you may have been surprised by an accidental exercise in pseudo music. I want to thank everybody. Oh, that was no accident. Okay, yes, it's my fault. My grievous fault. Mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. But I want to thank everybody for the positive reactions to Soul Monkey, a B5 parody in the in the style of Jonathan Colton. And we did actually post that as a separate MP3 file if you want to get it at b5audioguide.com. We may do that again. One of the problems is I like to use like Creative Commons music and things like that, and the only guy I'm know of that people know of who does creative commons music is jonathan colton that might get old really fast i don't know <laughs> yeah there were a number of people who asked if we were going to do this for every episode or at least more often and and it briefly briefly flitted through my head oh i should just write a parody uh of born to the purple uh to the tune of born in the usa and then i remembered i really don't like that song so i didn't want to hear it that many times and i gave it up right away i think it'd kill us don't you Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not It's not going to happen, people. Sorry. But like Chip said, maybe in the future. We'll when the inspiration see. strikes. Absolutely. Yes. Along those lines, uh, a few people have asked us if we're going to up our podcasting frequency and just to repeat, day jobs, other projects. So the B5 Audio Guide will remain bi-weekly for the foreseeable future. At the very least, we would need some additional help on the editing side of things because we're all kind of busy. But It's great that uh, you're telling us that you want more. Uh, That makes us feel good, and we'd like to deliver, but we can't right now. And finally, it was great to hear from Adam Mojo Leibowitz, who left some comments on our website and also dropped us a very nice email. He was a key animator on the team from Foundation Imaging, which was responsible for the uh, CGI for Babylon 5's first three seasons. And Mojo, thank you so much for writing. Uh, We love your work. We love your contribution. And we will get you on the podcast in the near future, you have been warned. (laughs) Yeah, that was awesome. Is it? Wasn't it, though? I mean, uh, you know. (laughs) I did a little little squee dance. Yes, I I, I heard you. (laughs) Listeners, as soon as I got the email, I immediately uh, FaceTime audio Erica and... I did hear the jumping up and down, and I did hear the clapping of hands. <laughs> That's right, I clapped. <laughs> I do that a lot, yeah. <laughs> On to Born to the Purple. Now, uh, something I want to try out here, since every episode of Babylon 5 was somebody's first, and uh, since we don't want to make everybody actually go through each episode of this podcast to get to the current one, because that... We don't want to set up any barriers to you discovering how great this show is. 
Born to the Purple, here's the background that you needed before this episode. Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space run by the Earth Alliance. It's the hub of diplomacy and trade for five major empires and many more non-aligned worlds. Among those are the Centauri Republic, that's humanoids with big hair, they're decadent, they're in decline, and the Narn regime, lizard dudes with a grudge, because 100 years ago, they were Centauri slaves. They're represented by Centauri Ambassador Lando Malari and Narn Ambassador Jakar. They don't like each other. In the middle, trying to keep the peace, trying to build the galactic peace, is B-5's military governor, Earth Force Commander Jeffrey Sinclair. He's our hero. So, born to the purple, what did we see? Londo falls for a Centauri exotic dancer in one of the clubs in the seamier side of Babylon 5. Sadly, she's a slave. She's owned by a man named Trachis who uses her to steal Londo's files containing valuable info about Centauri scandals that could destabilize the Empire. It's up to Sinclair to save the day. Meanwhile, Security Chief Garibaldi hunts down someone using unauthorized super-secure communications channels, and it turns out it's our own Lieutenant Commander Ivanova who is saying goodbye to her dying father. That was Born to the Purple, which originally aired in February 1994. I feel old. <laughs> Ditto that. Oh, so uh, when we wrapped up the previous podcast, Erica said how much she was looking forward to this episode. What did you think, Erica, this time around? I still like it. I, I really <laughs> do. This is one of my favorite, favoriter, is that a word? Favoriter stories of the first season uh, because it is all about the characters. To me, that's the thing that, that sings to me in everything but Babylon 5 specifically, is I really like the characters and how they play out and sort of unfold. And I enjoy stories that have intricate plots and stuff, and, and that is fine, but that's not what really draws me in. So this one maybe didn't have the most meaty of plots, I guess you could say. It was a little bit thin on the ground when it comes to that. I think everything in here is just about developing some of the characters. And that is that is like, maybe people consider that frosting, but I will eat the frosting before I will eat the cake. So that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I endorse that strategy. What about you, Shannon? I agree that this was a character heavy arc. This was about setting up more of the world a little bit more of the Narn Centauri conflict and a heck of a lot more about Londo. This is sort of the, the beginnings of what he's going to be like and, and what's going to happen to him down the road. Starts here. No spoilers. I'm, I'm not spoiling. I'm just saying that, you know, th this is an important episode in his personal arc because this is kind of the beginning, the real beginning of his journey. And I liked that. I also really like the Garibaldi Ivanova um, subplot where you start seeing, you know, the two of them, not, they've been a working team so far, but now you finally start to see them appreciating each other's humanity a little bit more that we, we haven't seen already. Um, and that's something else I really liked. Yeah, this is a big moment for most of the characters, actually, in terms of them working together as characters, as people, as having relationships with each other, as opposed to people in job positions interacting with each other, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. I mean, and even the characters who aren't major players in this still get a little bit of character development. I mean, in that very first scene, we have Jakar, you know, coming in, try trying to round up Londo to go to the negotiations. And you've got a dancer on stage behind them. And Jakar is just constantly like turning his head over his shoulder. Checking her he out. is such a horn dog. He 
he really <laughs> is. And that is just something that, that it comes out here. I mean, if you hadn't seen the gathering with the with him basically asking, you know, do you want to mate and, and give me some telepaths, uh, you wouldn't maybe necessarily know that part of his character. And, and we get a little bit of it here. And then he just plops right down next to Londo and, you know, drinks to women. So... Here, here. Yeah, they're definitely getting along a lot better than they did uh, in Midnight on the Firing Line. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why why that is. There's there's an in-universe and then there's a out-of-universe answer to that. But any thoughts uh, as far as the story itself? I would like to just chalk it up to the fact that they are ambassadors and they are very detached from the worlds that they are ambassadoring because they're far away and time has passed and... Yeah, maybe there's not a great in-world answer for that, but I'm willing to write it off and wave my hand a little bit and let it go. I I was more like thinking that Jakar was deliberately like, you know, okay, common ground, here's something and, and was almost making and was making broad humor of it. I I saw it more as, you know, they they still don't like each uh-huh. other at all, but you know, this is something, you know, yeah, I can agree to that. Women are great. Yeah, that 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 was my take. I I could go for that as well. This was, let's, let's pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that this is the first episode of Babylon 5 not to be written by J. Michael Straczynski, our showrunner. Mm. This was written by Larry Dottilio, executive story editor for the show. He had worked with JMS for years beforehand on a various, uh, primarily animated or children's series, Captain Power, The Real Ghostbusters. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. These are all shows that uh, JMS was heavily involved in, and Dottilio was right there with him. Just as an interesting side note, Dottilio also worked for shows like Transformers Beast Wars. He developed the Dragon Riders of Pern uh, with Anne McCaffrey, almost uh, made that into an animated series, but it didn't quite happen. I had no idea that was almost a thing. Now I am sad many years later. Yeah, (laughs) and as a matter of fact, Anne McCaffrey uh, gave him credit or uh, thank you in one of her novels um, after they would work together. Some of the concepts that he uh, developed actually made it into one of her future novels. Oh, I'm so having to look up which book that is. <laughs> now I must know. <laughs> and finally, uh, Dottilio also won the Morgan Cox Award from the Writers Guild of America West for improving working conditions for writers. So good on you, Larry Dottilio. You also wrote a pretty good episode here. However, I, I think I'm probably going to be the grumpy Gus of the three of us on this one. While I thought that this was an okay episode, I didn't love it. And the thing that got me the most about it was of all of the episodes we've seen to this point, this one feels the most dated. It feels so 90s. The background music, the costuming, that awful uh, that awful uh, hooded cloak thingy that uh, Sinclair's walking around in when he's being undercover. Uh, and we'll get How to that. How is that 90s? Well, yeah. it's 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 bad. Uh, no, I'll tell you what made me feel. I'll tell you what made me think 90s or, or maybe even late 80s. I don't know if you'll remember uh, this awful uh, cult series that uh, George R. R. Martin was actually responsible for, uh, Beauty and the Beast. And I love when- Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Oh, I adore that show so much. <laughs> this is Chip getting himself into further and further trouble. But anyway, uh, if you may recall that for the last season of that show's existence, uh, Linda Hamilton wanted to be written out, and they tried to turn it into this edgy sci-fi ad- 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 mm-hmm. fantasy adventure. Mm-hmm. And they all they ran repeatedly these commercials into heavy rotation 
of a guy with high-tech glowing sunglasses and a shotgun going after Vincent the Lion Man. I swear to God, (laughs) I swear to God, the assassins who go after Sinclair and Londo, that the the guy with the ostentatious shades reminded me of that of, of that uh, production okay, design have... <laughs> production design of this episode really rubbed me the wrong way and some of the performances just didn't work for me as well it just i get what both of you are saying about the importance of character and uh what worked for Londo and all that stuff but i thought this was just a little overplayed in the same way that some of the soul hunter stuff was a little overplayed well, that's I have fair. No, I have I have no uh, defense for the basically the random heavy bad dudes. I, I have no defense for them anywhere in this entire series. <laughs> just put, <laughs> put that out there. Those guys are always going to be lame, and there's just no getting around it. Yeah, you need the occasional extras, and you know they do what they can. See, I thought that. The feeling of it wasn't necessarily 90s or late 80s, but the emphasis on the, since Londo's such a focus and Adira, the, the Centauri, I mean, the, you get this feel of just kind of how out of step they are compared to the rest of the galaxy because their costumes just call back to old Renaissance Earth. You know, they're, they're, they're heavy gowns, there's flounces, there's all this jewelry that they've had for centuries in, in their families, that sort of thing. It differentiates the Centauri, I think, from the rest of the races that we've seen so far, along with the introduction of the fact that the Centauri, at least, still allow slavery, which is something that absolutely the Earth isn't allowing anymore. We get the feeling the Narn probably wouldn't if they just got over being enslaved by the Centauri. Um, The Mimbari, we see no sign of any kind of that sort of thing. So it's one of the things that starts separating the Centauri a little bit from the other races, um, is this look... Another interesting thing about sort of set design costumes uh, tied in with the Centauri is we see here the fact that Centauri women, or at least this one, are bald. And I think mm-hmm. that that is such an amazing and cool thing to do because, I mean, certainly not in the 90s, even now, bald women are not generally considered to be stereotypically pretty. You know, that's not the, the generally accepted idea of, of what Western beauty is supposed to be. So taking the, the females of, of this species, and clearly she is supposed to be a very beautiful specimen because, mm-hmm. you know, she's a, she's a dancer and she, he fell for her. So, so you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head in enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. I just I was blown away by that the first time and I I still love it. I think that that's it's a cool bold thing to do and I st- just watching this story I forgot almost immediately that she was bald. I was just like she's a pretty right. lady and right. I like her and and I think I wish more TV shows did that sort of thing because I feel like that would maybe, you know, surreptitiously break down some of the prejudices people have. Yeah, I think Sorry, maybe I'll get off my soapbox. No, 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 that's OK. I, although I think that Ilea in Star Trek, the motion picture may have poisoned the well for that a little bit. I remember how they made such a big deal introducing Persis Kambata and, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that the critical failure of that movie probably this was probably the first opportunity for science fiction bald women to really make a comeback, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'd forgotten about the Persis Kambata thing, although she was a fine-looking bald woman herself. So. She she was. I think she got. Uh, I think the. I think bald science fiction women got unfairly marked by Star Trek: The Motionless Picture. But yeah, um, let's uh, stay with the Centauri for just another moment. Uh, This episode, as you've both said, really highlights what a throwback the Centauri Republic is. 
they are so much less progressive. It's almost shocking as a resident of the 21st century on Earth to see how backward the Centauri are in that way. Not only slavery, but also some really, really clear gender roles uh, exactly. going on. Exactly. I actually wound up having a discussion on Tumblr about this with some other folks that of all the um, strong female characters in Babylon 5, yes, we have all these great characters from several different races. You know, we've got Delenn, we've got, you know, Ivanova and Talia. We will see very soon, well, we had, you know, the first uh, with uh, Mary Wanrov's character, uh, Kodath, although we don't get her for very long. Um, but Spoilers. Okay. But um, yeah. Centauri, but yeah, the Centauri clearly again are out of step because the, their women are either subservient or forced into background roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, speaking of, of of Kodath, that that was the one thing that I wasn't particularly fond of in this episode. I didn't like how it was just very sort of the old-fashioned wah-wah-wah, here comes a woman sort of thing. I I didn't like that they just sort of played up the 1940s, you know, strong women woman thing, whereas on the other... And it just seemed to not fit because on the other hand, you've got Ivanova, who is simply a strong character, and they Mm -hmm. don't play up the fact that she's female at all. Just, yeah, it, it rubbed, that's what rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, it was slightly annoying because I felt like it was almost there, almost a good chemistry between her and Jakar. That the fact that she did seem to be such a almost a Mary Poppinsy character, you know, ex- that with you know expecting to you know duty propriety. I'm here to do my job, and you're going to do your job. And yet, you know, every time she's approached by you know another man, she turns around and hisses. It felt like it was almost there, but not quite. She's like the Commander Strax of the Babylon 5 universe. (laughs) I guess. Eh, Maybe. I'm not not the biggest Strax defender either. I just just thought it was was too over the top. I feel like if, and, and I don't know if this was the actor or if it was the direction or what it was, even if it was the writing, but if they would have played it with more sort of class and less Mm -hmm. slapstick maybe i could have gone for it that's one of the things that sort of irritated me a little bit about the whole episode that that you did have this sort of um whiplash effect going on at times with the the broad comedy and then the very endearing romantic heartfelt moments it it some kind of felt it felt like too much of a seesaw from one minute you've got veer playing his little future game boy and you know claire having to slap him out of his hand and a couple Love minutes that moment, later by the way oh yeah um and then you know just a couple minutes later you've got londo pouring his heart out to adira and giving her this you know gem that's been in his family for centuries it that felt a little off well let's talk about the romance a little bit um yes let's <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there is a metaphorical baton, and it is being handed to Erica right now. <laughs> I I am just a sucker for a good love story, and I am an even bigger sucker for a love story that features star-crossed lovers. However, I can get turned off pretty fast when they sort of do it wrong. I get upset when the characters make dumb decisions simply for the sake of the plot to make it interesting. I don't like it when... when people don't communicate or do things that are just they just make weird choices and you know it's just to create drama and i didn't find any of that in this story i think everybody's acts 
towards their motivations, at least as far as we can see them from the character development we've had so far. Yes, I suppose it's possible Adira could have chosen to come clean to Londo and just, you know, throw herself on his mercy. But they made it clear that she is a slave and she's been knocked around her life, her whole life. And and I, I I thought that actress was just fantastic. So I, I completely believed her choices and, and what she did. So everybody acted the way I thought was natural for them. And it was, it was gripping and it was heart-wrenching and it was sad. And I just loved watching Londo sort of, he he flowered. He really did. He In the previous episodes, he'd been this really sad old bureaucrat. And for the first time we see him smiling, I mean, he's willing to throw over all of the, you know, he's to hell with appearances, he says, and that's totally antithetical to everything Centauri Republic stands for, you know, talking about all their old clothes and stuff. You know, that's, that's just clothes. He's, he's willing to go out with a slave and be seen in public. I mean, it's, it warms the cockles of my heart. And I'm getting misty just thinking about it. <laughs> Aww. Uh, Shannon, are you similarly misty? Um, not misty, but appreciative. Um, that that part of the storyline, I think, does do a good job. I agree that you know, with within the motivations that we are provided, most everybody's choices make sense, and you know, they they do the best they can with those somewhat clunky props. That that mind probey thing was um, a little weird. <laughs> oh, but... oh, oh! Is is the mind probe the second Doctor Who crossover? I've just got to ask. <laughs> I think sure. it, when she said mind probe, I said, no, not, not, the, not mind the mind probe. probe. Steve, yes. Steven was just like, I was waiting for that. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Shannon. Yeah. And, and like Erica said, you know, you get this side of Londo that we haven't seen before. The fact that he can be so tender, that, you know, he can be so sweet uh, to somebody. And, you know, as we said, you know, th- this is setting up his story arc that we're going to see him go up and down through um, all the all five years. Um, and, and it starts now. And I think it, it does a pretty good job of that. Again, trying to make sure that we don't go into spoiler territory. Let me ask the question about how believable the relationship is. People sometimes get their backs up over the pretty young thing attaching herself to. Uh, I mean, Peter Jurisic is great. He's a great actor. Londo is a great character. But this is not your classical leading man kind of material. Is this a believable relationship? I mean, obviously, it was prompted in part by the fact that uh, she's a slave and her owner is forcing her to spark this relationship. But I assume that you both buy it. I sure do. And I mean, maybe that's just because I'm a a soppy romantic at heart. But I, I Guilty. do buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think, too, that that at the end, there's nothing written in the episode that makes it 100% clear that Adira truly loves Londo. I think it's the performance that sells that, because there are no lines that really put that over the top for me. And I, I think that's the part that we would maybe have a little more doubt about. I, I think it's pretty clear that Londo is head over heels for her. He, he gives away a family yeah. heirloom. And I like the fact that there's nothing sort of written in there. So if you're maybe a little more cynical than I am, you could perhaps read it that she is, but she's still just using him all the way along. But I, I definitely don't feel it because I feel like her performance showed that she really loved him. <laughs> it's actually the other way around for me. The The amount of power that Londo has compared to her, is he using her? Clearly, the way he behaves demonstrates that he does not. And that's the that's the writer's intent. You know, he's not using her. He's he he, he, he he's enjoying he's, her. He's enjoying her. He's fall. <laughs> he's fallen in love with her. But 
in other hands, in a different circumstance, there were a lot of people who had the similar issues with like Pretty Woman, and I know Shannon uh, lo- likes that movie quite a bit. <laughs> Me um, too. You too. Oh, <laughs> admit that. Yep. Yeah. Long um, distance high five. okay so i i am slightly more cynical but not so much over how this story was done as how this story perhaps could have been done so i think i think what makes it work for me is the fact that from his side she really does teach him something she you know this is harkens back to pretty woman a little bit too it's not just that he has all the power coming to this relationship and she is the one that has changed at the end because she's freed uh he actually evolves right in front of us and admittedly we haven't seen too much of him but there, there's a definitely a shift in the character from before to this story and i think that that is probably the greatest gift that you can give somebody so why not <laughs> return love for that right now we have been speaking for a surprising amount of time on what i thought was going to be a pretty quick episode and <laughs> we haven't even talked about susan ivanova hooray i like i like <laughs> this i like this very much but i feel like i've been blabbing a lot so somebody else talk shannon <laughs> balls in your court <laughs> <laughs> no i i agree it's it's a neat little character study with between you know Garibaldi pursuing this and you know Ivanova's going like this isn't a big deal or you know she's throwing up these different reasons and I think it takes the viewers the first time I think it takes us a little while to start to twig that it might be Ivanova herself that either knows something about this or is using these channels for communication on the sly so I think the two actors do a really good job, I think, going through this. We finally see a little bit at Garibaldi can be clever. We haven't really seen that yet of him. But he's been sort fact, of the bulldog. Yeah, he's been the quippy. I think one of our contributors on the website said he was the Bruce Willis character. And I think that's that's totally, <laughs> totally. fair. Oh, yeah. That's totally he, fair. And now we get to see that it's not just he's not just brawn. He's he's got some brains too. He he starts to suspect. He realizes Ivanova might be distracting him. He still does his job. He gets people to where they need to be, and then tracks down the communication and discovers that Ivanova has been trying to communicate with her dad. We also get some more of Susan's background. We've already learned about the suicide of her mother when she was talking with Talia in Midnight on the Firing Line, and now we get. More of that, the fact that apparently her father shut down between the mother's suicide and her brother dying in the Mimbari War, that he just had no room for anything other than his grief. And now, of course, that he's dying, he's regretting. You know, it's a classic sort of cliched scene, but they do a pretty good job portraying it and selling it. And, you know, now Garibaldi is like, he knows a little bit more about Ivanova, and he's very careful to let her know he knows without doing anything to damage her shell, which is, again, pretty clever of him. Yeah, he's got some amazing emotional intelligence in this episode. And that does almost as much for him as this whole storyline does for Susan. We did get in Midnight on the Firing Line, we did get some of that backstory. But up until this point, she's been kind of closed down. Uh, she's had her moments about, you know, joking with Franklin about how, dryly joking about how they like how busy it is, but this is where we finally get to see the emotional life of Susan Ivanova, and I think one that thing, that's really important. And one thing that I guess maybe I didn't notice or noticed and forgot 
but I saw watching this time was that she clearly enjoys this, this little contest that she's got going on mm-hmm. with Garibaldi. Like when he turns and walks away, like there's a tiny little sly smile on her face. And I think it's not until that point that we start to twig that, oh, maybe she has something to do with it. But I, I think that that's pretty cool because as you said she has been very sort of closed down and then you do get the scene with with her father where she's she's definitely still standing ramrod straight but you can see she's tearing up a little bit although i do think that that scene is some of the more clunky dialogue in in this story we get the uh, a, a little bit of that exposition dump stuff going on from mm-hmm. the father's side you know instead of saying you know when your brother died it's when your brother was killed in the war who talks like that right <laughs> Yeah, that's but it's fair. Still I had some emotional impact, so I still yeah. liked it. I wonder what it is. It seems like, at least early on, maybe they're still trying to find the character. They seem to have a bit of trouble of with with Ivanova lines or Ivanova scenes of of getting it right. I, I guess like Londo just must he must just be easier to write for the moon faced assassin of joy, you know, stuff like that <laughs> right. that just rolls off the tongue for him that they come up with. One of the great lines of this episode, B5 Raven in our comments said that that's her computer startup song. And I imagine it's been that way for a while. I love that <laughs> line. I love that. Uh, I love the chemistry between Londo and Veer. It's, it's very well done in this episode. Real quick, Sinclair, let's do our episode by episode Sinclair check with Erica. Uh, how credible a hero is he this time around? I actually, I quite like the way he operates in this story, uh, using the, the telepath for negotiations to, to get peace. You know, everything is happening within the letter of the law. You know, she's not going to break the rules, but he manages to find a way to get her to, well, convince her to figure out a way, I guess is actually how it worked, to, to, to make things turn out okay for the good guys. And I think one of the reasons that I like Sinclair so much in this story is because he's not in it all that much. So he's, he pops up and he's he's good at what he, he does for a little bit and then he goes away. I'd have to say that this is not one of my favorite Michael O'Hare performances. And when we were talking at the end of the last episode about our various perspectives on Born to the Purple... I went straight to the scene in the Dark Star Club when Sinclair suddenly throws his head back yeah. and laughs, and that is such a bad performance. That uh, I uh, he Michael O'Hare is trying to portray Sinclair portraying a smarmy underworld type, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. See, that, to me, that didn't seem any different than his performances pretty much anywhere else. <laughs> I appreciate the subtleties, Erica. <laughs> Clearly. I liked overall the same moment that Chip pointed out, you know, did, did not ring true to me. And it, it was more not that it was a bad acting choice on Michael O'Hare's part. It struck me as Sinclair would not be a very good actor in that situation. So that that would be, you know, Sinclair trying his best to, to pretend to be this underground type. Um, so it didn't quite ring the same way for me. But yeah, it was a bit over the top. But on the other hand, we see again, Sinclair is able to negotiate and move the chess pieces so that he's able to twist Jakar and Londo's arms in different ways to get the peace settlement that he wants. So at the end, he he has succeeded. Last uh, quick points that I want to make before we go into spoiler space is the where have we seen them before file. Um, I talked earlier about how uh, Larry Dottilio worked with JMS on a bunch of uh, animated series and things like that. 
Uh, Clive Revel and uh, Mary Warrenov both worked with JMS on uh, several projects in the past as well, didn't they, Shannon? Yeah. Um, Revel, under all that makeup, is actually a character actor. A lot of people would probably recognize his face. Um, and he was on both uh, The New Twilight Zone and Murder, She Wrote. And uh, Mary Warrenoff, she also appeared on Murder, She Wrote. Could you refresh my memory as to which Babylon 5 characters those were? Um, Mary Warrenoff is uh, under Kodath. the Kodath mask. Okay. And uh, Clive Revell is Trachus. I think it's oh, Re- yes. I think it's Revel or something like that. Uh, but okay, um, we look yeah, forward Stephen to. Mentioned, Stephen mentioned him right away because he was like, "Hey, he was the uh, voice of the Emperor in Empire Strikes Back." Yeah, and he was also the first voice of Alfred in Batman the a- Animated Series, and he was replaced both times. Oh dear. By Ian McDiarmid uh, in Empire uh, in the special editions and by uh, Ephraim Zimbalist uh, in Batman the Animated Series. Uh, About Ephraim Zimbalist, we will say no more because that belongs in spoiler space. Yeah, but uh, Ravel has done a huge amount of voice acting as well. And that may may be another connection if he um, happened to do any voice work for any of the animated stuff that JMS did. I didn't see that when I went poking around on IMDb. Okay, I'm going to hold up a metaphorical stop sign and say, we've gone too far and we still haven't gone into hyperspace yet. So we're getting ready to jump into spoiler space and talk about this episode in the context of all of the episodes that you may not have seen yet if you're joining us on this voyage through Babylon 5 for the first time. So this is your chance to get out while the getting's good if you don't want to be spoiled for future episodes. Your homework assignment for next time, however, is the episode Infection. And Erica, you have the honor of uh, moderating the episode for that one. Anything that you want to tell people about Infection before they go? Um, watch it, and then we'll talk about it. There you go. <laughs> All righty then. Uh, so this is the non-spoiler section of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. We are, of course, at b5audioguide.com. We're on Twitter and Tumblr if you look for B5 Audio Guide. And we will see you next time. And now we're jumping into spoilers. Thanks. And we're back. Thank you and for Sinclair's sticking with us. Hey, wait a minute. That's my gonna, thing. I wasn't going to let you do it first this time. It's my turn. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so, Londo and Jakar, you talk. I'm done. I'm sulking. <laughs> I think it, their relationship here, I, I don't feel like it got to, a, a chance to play out too much. I think that... Honestly, when I was watching this and, and thinking about how it fits into the continuity, there's you know some definite continuity stuff going on with, with Adira, but the Jakar piece felt really kind of slight and small to me in this story, and I'm okay with that because it seems like it's we don't want to belabor that point too much that these guys have such a strong connection. We just get a little bit of... of interaction at the beginning and then we have poor Jakar tricked into helping Londo at the end and storming off in a huff. I don't know. Did you guys get more out of that than than I did? I think part of what this episode tried to do a little bit was in a tiny way set up a little bit more that 
in a lot of ways, they're actually more alike than they would admit. You know, they mm-hmm. do, you know, clink glasses and admit, yes, you know, women are great. But then you've got, for example, when um, both uh, Londo and Jakar shove their assistants into the negotiating room, they both say the exact same thing. Don't give mm-hmm. away the home world. You know, that, that <laughs> deliberate echo, um, I think, is there to very gently remind us, you know, these, these two guys are essentially in the same kind of position with their home worlds. They're both ambassadors and they both in some ways think alike. And I think we'll see that here and there um, throughout the series. Yeah. Um, this is the first time that they actually drink together. Uh, Jakar offers uh, Londo a drink in Midnight on the Firing Line, which Londo immediately refuses. Just seeing them sitting together, clinking glasses and thinking about what's to come when Jakar and Londo will drink to the health of Londo's emperor and how badly that's going to go. And then a little later on when Londo offers Jakar a drink to, it, it, by way of apologizing for everything that he did uh, to uh, Narn in the Shadow War, just seeing them sitting casually together, drinking over the joys of wine, women, and song was... It was almost poignant to me. My own version of sentimentality is wanting to see um, reconciliation. And that was a moment where there could have been, which would have eliminated the next five years worth of story if there actually had been any. But it was it was kind of nice and poignant to see that at the same time. You know, I've, I liked this story to begin with. And now you guys have given me yet another layer of reasoning to enjoy it more. So thank you. I, I didn't pick up on that. And, and I'm glad you pointed it out. Because now that I put it together and think about it, you are absolutely right. Hooray. Okay. I feel accomplished. Uh, what about uh, what about Adira's murder um, later on when uh, in season in season three uh, when she gets killed off? That's the thing that sends Londo right back into Morden's waiting arms. She hadn't been mentioned at all after this episode until uh, the mannequin on the gurney comes back, you know, representing her. Uh, did this episode do what it needed to do to establish why Londo would make the decisions that he made to get back in with Morden? I think I thought so. It did. I think so. Because, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, it, it's it's set pretty obviously in the, in the episode just how much Londo cares about her. I mean, you've got the symbolic gift of the jewelry that belonged to his his ancestor, a woman that was, you know, considered incredibly wise, incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, and Adira recognizes this because her first instinct is like, you know, I can't take this there. You know, there's no way I can take something like this out of your family. So I think Londo's feelings for her are really established. Um, I agree. I'm I'm not remembering if there's any background or mention between not, not this a peep. episode. Not, not a, a peep. Because really, really, I think no. that might have helped a bit. Although you know, he they also make it clear that she's leaving because um, they need this distance. You know, they, they need to take some time, take some distance. She needs to find out who she is as, as a free woman. She's no longer a slave. Um, she can now do anything and go anywhere. And Londo realizes she needs to go and experience life in that situ- in that status. So, yeah, and actually, the fact that he freed her even after she had you know, stolen from him, that was another sort of nail in the coffin to convince me that he, he really does love her. And I mm-hmm. do think that... 
if Babylon 5 was the type of show where we were often seeing characters sort of on their own mooning about something or other, uh, then the fact that she isn't mentioned between might bother me. But there's uh, this was the, an experience that I think was really close to Londo's heart. And it's not the kind of thing that he's going to talk to about even to somebody like veer well certainly not to veer he, he he's not opening up uh, at, certainly at this point and i think that if he if we were going to get mention or something of her it would have had to been shoehorned in in kind of a an awkward sort of a way like him muttering to himself or looking at a photo which would have basically wasted time when it comes yeah. to the story yeah so and, i'm okay and, with that and and one of jms's strengths on this show of which there are many as well as a few weaknesses but one of his strengths is he is willing to pair away the things that do not move a particular story forward and that yep. sometimes means that you're going to have to shoehorn exposition in much later on. But yeah, I would agree. I think that uh, that this episode does do what it needs to do. And then we get a few flashbacks to this episode in the third season episode that uh, <sighs> sends Londo down the path to mm-hmm. almost well, completely well, unable to redeem himself. Yep. You know, I really think that in this episode, this is as close as we ever come to seeing the real Londo, the the person that he would be if it wasn't for all of these ridiculous and dire and terrible circumstances piling down on his head and sort of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and making the, you know, <laughs> the wrong choices. And, you know, he becomes a different person because of those choices. True. But right here, I think this is this is the Londo that 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 could have been. And I think she not only is is it because of the loss of her that that sends him completely and irrevocably away from this later but she's the one that brings him to it in this first place so she's sort of you know a one woman roller coaster i think we see uh two different layers of weakness is perhaps the word that i would use for londo or certainly his his temptations wine women and song is definitely on the surface this is the, this is Londo's failing. He is a sucker for. Um, he's he, he's a hedonist or a hedonist, however you pronounce it. He is looking for pleasure where he, wherever he can, and he gets it from luxury and from what begins as physical affection clearly becomes emotional affection. But wine, women, and song. But there's something underneath that that is much darker, which is. He he still does feel like a washed-up old Republican, as he puts it in uh, bed to Adira. And when she's gone, he's a washed-up old Republican all over again. Uh, mm-hmm. Is she the good woman who could have kept him happier and kept him not dwelling on his lack of status and his Republic's fall, things like that? There's, Interesting. There's a big blob of nothing inside him you know he talks about uh only seeing the mask and adir is able to cover that for him then she's gone is she really covering a gap though or is this <laughs> we're getting into really deep londo territory here but yeah. i i think that i think but beneath that sort of blob of nothingness there is a core of of uh, a hopeless romantic uh, and I think he's sort of, he strikes me as a bit of as a wounded poet sort of a thing. And um, on the surface, you know, above that layer, he does have sort of that darkness, which, you know, you get with a lot of poet 
type folks. And I think I, I saw her as helping him dig down past that to the the layer underneath it, what could have been. He's it, it finally ignoring all of the trappings and paying attention to the, the here and now. You know, he's he's hitting the, the be here now button. And and that's that's helping him out. And I think that it's sort of the the hopeless romantics are the ones that go bad the worst when mm. things go poorly. So I feel like that's part of what convinced me that he would make these terrible choices later on because he just he's trapped in that nothingness. I mean, maybe he's depressed. I <laughs> frame it in terms of of human mental illnesses that I can understand. Maybe it's 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 depression and and she helped him break past that momentarily and then he sinks again something that i'm thinking about that listening to you guys talking um and of course i can't remember the name of the episode right now but the episode where we get to meet londo's three wives and the contrast in you know in the in the type of women that he chose or was arranged with you know we we know that there's a lot of arranged marriages in centauri society and the fact that um, I think it was Timov that he decided to stay married to. Yes. And it was because she was the only one he could trust to be honest to him. And I'm not sure we get quite that same dynamic with Adira. Um, he's appreciating and enjoying Adira's company. You know, he, he doesn't quite believe her. You know, he's like, you know, you, you know, why would you, you know, want to be with someone longing for better days? And she very earnestly and truthfully says, these are my better days. You know, I, I get to spend time with you. I get to um, enjoy your company. And he doesn't quite buy that. I'm just the, the contrasts that and what they show about the different facets of Londo, the, the private romantic versus Londo, the public patriarch. Um, you know, they, they, they show a lot of a lot of involved things. Yeah. This episode, on the surface level, gives the most buffoonish character on the show, short of Veer, the first real love story. And it's a very effective and romantic love story. But it also really peels back the onion and gives you a look at the complex psychology of this guy who is going to have the worst possible answer to the question, what do you want in uh, in a few mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah. yeah, talk about complex psychology. I mean, that is Londo all the way through, and it, it really starts here. Yes, it does. Yeah, and not just... Um and not just Londo. I mean, you know, some of the other characters, we, we've talked it a, b- a bit about Garibaldi and Susan um, and the fact that, you know, in a couple of episodes down the line, Susan's going to have the Shiva for her father and go through um, all of these stages of grief um, where we'll get uh, more insights into her character. We get the first hints of just how much of a rule bender Tali is going to turn into. Um, with her involvement with the Psychor, you know, she, she almost finds against this very- her will. But yeah. Yeah, the fact that she and she'll only do it, you know, because, you know, she might be saving a life. That's, you know, that's her sticking point. You know, somebody could die if she doesn't help. Um, But the fact that she does find a way to trick Trakas into thinking what she needs on the surface so she can pick it up and we will see her find reasons to do what she wants um, several times down the line as she grows farther from the cycle. And you know, you saying that makes me think that in the world that we're living in right now, in the post-Edward Snowden and a NSA spying and all this other stuff, 
the Psycor storyline is going to be especially relevant to us, I think, as we get deeper into it. <laughs> yeah. Habs of yes. Lutely. <laughs> okay. Ding. There it was. I was waiting for that to happen <laughs> yep. this episode. So having met our Absofragonlutely quota and our Sinclair's Valen quota and our Sinclair check-in with Erica quota, I think we've done pretty much everything we need to unless either of you have anything last minute you want to add to the episode. This has nothing to do with spoiler territory, but I, I noticed there's a specific sound effect that was used in this, and that it, this may be something that you could consider fairly 90s. Um, I refer to it as the labyrinth sound effect because it's used very heavily in my favorite film, Labyrinth. Um, but it, it happens when they, it cuts from Londo, like to and looking at the brooch, um, to the. Uh, the crystal um and i can't remember exactly there are a couple different places where it happens and it's just this weird sparkly sounding thing which i have to now that i think about it agree with chip that it is kind of a 90s thing <laughs> i win <laughs> but i loved it 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 made me so happy because i was like oh that friend okay mental <laughs> note check for the wave file edit into this <laughs> got it shannon any last words boy that um, came out dark <laughs> Well, we touched on yeah most of the things that um, I wanted to chew on in this episode. Uh, we still get you know the little bits and pieces that sort of tie into the fact that you know this is a realistic future of Earth. We've got you know Garibaldi grumbling about the Dodgers. Apparently, the Dodgers are still losing, and they're um, using you know, those that, recycled newspapers. Right? Yeah, that you only print what you want and then you recycle them, and um, which is simultaneously yeah. forward-looking and very nineties. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. That is almost an hour on Born to the Purple, which I would not have thought it possible. Uh, next time, we are taking on the organic Iron Man episode. <laughs> that one might be shorter. <laughs> well, it's up to you. You're the moderator for that one. <laughs> and then following that, I was very unhappy to hear uh, from Shannon that uh, it, it'll be her turn when Parliament of Dreams comes up. Because... Yay! Yeah. <laughs> I love that episode, and I would have I would have wrested control from it. Uh, but be that as it may, no. uh, next time it is infection, and it will be the three of us, and we will be looking forward to your comments at b5audioguide.com. Thanks again for listening to this uh, podcast with us. We wish we could bring it out faster. We are very, very glad for every single one of you who is listening to us. And we look forward to seeing you next time. So this is Chip and Durham. Erica and Edmonton. And Shannon and Durham. And this has been the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Babylon 5.